0: I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Joey Lee. And we love to watch. We love to watch, knows that human insect mutation is far from an exact science. Find me and follow me through corridors, of factories. and files. You must follow me, This academic we will find me in the matinee. The dark of the matinee is better in the matinee. The dark of the matinee is my.
1: to you how you guys doing good great that was a weird good i've been listening back to the podcast recently and i feel like my intros post break are also really bad they've been getting <laughs> weirdly high like <laughs> overly enthusiastic i don't know i i feel like i need to restart uh my entire podcast career and figure out how to say hello to people and how to welcome <laughs> people back from a break i'm i'm not doing good peter you say it you say hey enthusiastically hey guys how you doing that sounded natural like you're a human being
0: Uh, (laughs) i'm also just naturally a like overly enthusiastic person to the point where people think i'm being sarcastic it actually backfires (laughs) it backfires all the
1: time oh yeah i mean most of the people that you get uh food from a restaurant spit in your food right (laughs) Thank hey, how you, you so much for this guy. soup. <laughs> Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we are we are lucky today to be joined uh, by Joey Lee. Uh, Joey was supposed to join us for the lure episode. We had some scheduling conflicts, but we are so happy that she's joining us for our inaugural episode on Joe Dante Summer here on We Love to Watch. If you've never heard us before, we are a movie podcast that picks a topic of four to five movies and then discusses all those movies on a week-to-week basis and this week we are starting the our now by our second annual summer july poll where we let uh you the audience pick what month we were going to cover and you guys selected correctly and picked joe dante summer so joey lee welcome so much we're i am so excited about this month Uh, Before we get going any further, though, if you don't know, Joey, why don't you let her tell you three things about herself?
2: So I wrote my uh, thesis in college on um, political films' effect on people's perceptions of American politics. Um, It was called From Al Gore to Michael Moore, The Uses for Contemporary Political Film and Its Skittish American Audience. Uh, That was about a decade ago, back when Al Gore and Michael Moore were like the two big names in uh, documentaries. How do we read that? (laughs) How can we (laughs) read that? So there's a copy. There's been a lot of interest in The Dissolve. I've gotten requests for it a lot. It's 120 pages. It's on a broken computer that I need to take to the Mac store to get the files off of it. But when I do, you'll be the first to know. Or if you want to go to the Bard College Library in upstate New York in Annandale on Hudson, um, (laughs) there is a copy in the library. Um, So, you know, go nuts if you want to do that. Um,
1: Well, hold on. Would it help? Like, since it is a paper for school, would we get to read it quicker if I told you it was due by Friday? Ha.
2: Uh, no, because I, I already argued this thesis in front of a board and, um, and I got an A on it. But afterwards, um, my advisor was like, oh, I caught a couple typos. And I was like an incredibly sleep deprived senior on <laughs> the cusp of graduation. And I was like, oh, my God, when do, when, when do I get these corrections to you? And he was like, oh. No, I just thought you might want to edit them out for yourself because <laughs> you worked really hard on this. And I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna go whiz through finals now and write five page papers like it's nothing." So, um, um, and I actually used it. Here's another thing about me: I work in the food advocacy space, so I, I set up um, a bunch of you know petitions and action alerts, um, you know, on the farm bill, on asking companies to stop using like synthetic colorings and flavorings that have adverse health effects and, and stuff like that. Um, and film is a really incredible um, way to get people engaged in issues and get them to, to take action in, in political issues. So I think about my thesis very often
1: in my work. Hey, Peter, can we have a quick sidebar? Yeah. Can we can we stop inviting people on the podcast that are cooler than us? <laughs> it's, really, it's really embarrassing actually. It's really embarrassing like, like all we did was just like buy a microphone and that's our qualifications for this and um... <laughs> And that's about it. And she's, she's going to make us look foolish, I think.
0: I think she's going to do that thing that the Joker does in The Dark Knight where she breaks a pool cue in half and then gives us each and a half. And she says, I'm having auditions for my
1: co-host for We Love to Watch.
2: Nice. That would be a sick burn.
1: <laughs> I, it is the sickest burn to come on a podcast and then be the host next time. Oh, that would be <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Taking over.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... My third thing is when I was um, at uh, Bard College, I was a tour guide. Um, I gave a lot of tours, and it's in upstate New York, so a lot of celebrities' kids apply there. Um, So, the biggest celebrities I ever gave a tour to, I gave a tour to Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. uh, And I gave a tour to, um, uh, I gave a private tour to Kathleen Turner and her daughter. That was pretty fabulous that is
1: amazing and once again Peter we've made a terrible mistake
2: <laughs> 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 Kathleen yep. Turner started smoking a cigarette on the tour which normally you know I would frown upon but it was Kathleen Turner and I'm, she's got she's a powerful
1: woman I'm not going to tell her what to do no and that's she, like that's the secret to her voice you can't take that away Right, from her exactly
2: <laughs> so her daughter actually had a squeaky voice which I was like oh you poor girl um, so, so her daughter goes, "Mom, you're being inappropriate," and she goes, "Oh, darling, sometimes I'm inappropriate." It was so fabulous. <laughs> so,
0: good. so you got to step into a Kathleen Turner movie for just a few minutes.
1: It was so good. So yeah, well, thank you so much. That was a bunch of amazing information. And if you're listening and planning to be a guest on We Love to Watch in the future, uh, please uh, do as good as Joey. Uh, please meet some celebrities and also write. Uh, a dissertation or else just fucking don't even bother like don't bring your I was born here <laughs> into this t- at she you you raised the bar is what i'm saying yes Joan. and um, we haven't
2: even started yet really so we haven't like, even started oh also i know I have a suggestion. If you guys ever edit music in, you should edit in the song Matinee by Franz Ferdinand,
1: which is a of pretty song. Of course. That was uh, – I am editing this week. That was 100% going to be the song that opens the movie because it's also every time I hear the word Matinee, the only song that pops into my head. Right. Uh, they really cornered really, uh, the market on, yeah, on, on that uh, word uh, in song form. Uh, so Joe Dante, that's the month. And we are – before we get into matinee, which I'm very excited to talk about, but I think it might make sense to talk a little bit about Joe Dante. So we haven't done too many directors on this show. It's not really our bread and butter, but we do have favorite directors that we like to cover some, some movies from. And uh, Dante and Carpenter and Romero and some of these guys always seemed like these are the type of directors that we want to do – a month devoted to. We're not blank check. We're not going through filmographies, although I definitely see a world where the Dantes and the Carpenters of the world. We end up doing every single one of their movies uh, at some point, besides a few notable outliers like bearing the X in the ward. But um, he is just a very unique director who had an amazing influence on films. He comes from that Roger Corman school that gave us like, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Corman documentary that came out uh, a few years ago. It's always funny watching or even looking back at how much Corman, like, influenced to realize, like, 50% of your favorite directors, like, started doing a Corman movie. And Joe Dante worked with him for a long time, actually. He didn't do the one and done. He had a kind of a longer-term relationship. So I think it makes sense before we get into our first Dante movie in Dante Month to talk a little bit about uh, our feelings on Joe Dante in general.
0: Joey, do you want to start? Because I, I feel like you have a pretty, pretty quick story with your experience with Joe Dante. But I'd love to hear sure. it.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I have been watching this movie since I was so young that I wasn't really paying attention to directors, um, and I haven't seen any other Joe Dante movies. Uh, I watched this movie frequently as a kid because my mom really liked it. Um, and she could never remember the name of matinee. She would just always call it the Matt movie. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So we'd have to like go look up either like, and this is like pre, you know, before we got the internet. So we'd have to either go look up in our little like DVD and movie review book, everything by John Goodman, or, um, you know, I don't know. Fi- you know, eventually someone would think of matinee or, or you know, we'd figure it out somehow. Um, but yeah, I've never, I've never seen you know Gremlins or, or anything else he's done. Um, not even The Burbs, which is on my to watch list, definitely. Um, so I do not know that much about Joe Dante.
1: And you know what is he actually? It's funny because looking at his filmography, it's weird. And, and doing it's, it's weird, but he also hasn't done that many movies for a guy that's been making movies since 1976 and made his most recent one in 2014. You know, that's like 40 years of movie making and he's made like 15 theatrical movies and um and a couple more TV stuff and then a lot of like TV episode as well he hasn't made that many movies for someone who's like been active for 40 years um and if you even even when you look at the time of like when he was at the height of its power he he takes like 3 4 Years off from directing and he's not like a Zemeckis or Mm -hmm. one of those guys who also like I'm going to produce a ton of shit. He has like almost no producer credits to his name, almost no like other like writing or directing credits like to his name. It was either he was like making a movie once every few years in general and then like – Occasionally directing and like an amazing stories episode or something, but I couldn't I couldn't really find any reason why he's done so he did so little.
0: It could also be that he just his movies weren't making uh, the phone ring that much because there is like there are solid chunks in his in his career like. There is a five-year movie gap between 2009 and Bearing the Axe, which Bearing the Axe is not a good return for him. Well, and um, Trapped
1: Ashes doesn't – he just did the wraparound section. So, it's actually from Looney Tunes back in action to The Hole, right? Is that what you're – Oh, never talking mind. talking about you're The Hole to Bearing the Axe. Be, yeah, that's right. So
0: Sorry. No, no, that's no, fine. Um, So, he, he had like, yeah, a five-year gap right when – you know carpenter was giving uh, being given a second chance and right when uh you know the masters of horror uh thunder was getting injected in a lot of those guys the don coscarellis like the these older guys that you know maybe their careers were slowing down or they couldn't adjust to the, to the new new hollywood the new version of hollywood with you know smaller budgets and faster turnarounds and that's what horror movies are um and so there, there could be a story there. He is in, in interviews. He's a very sweet, very humble dude, but a dude with political convictions. So he's not like a humble dude just because he's like, yeah, I'll take any job that, that you can you can give me. He's a dude with like an actual sense of purpose in life. And people
1: genuinely love working with him. Like, yeah, Spielberg, he, Spielberg talks sugar about him quite a bit. Yeah, you're right that everyone kind of loved him. And he is always, um, unlike a lot of directors, even even some, like, directors with a lot of touch, like, you know, a John Carpenter who started making stuff like in the 90s, Memories of Invisible Man, which didn't feel like John Carpenter movies. Joe Dante, with the, until he did Burying the X in 2014, all of his movies feel like Joe Dante movies. I think, Joey, when you, if you circle around and watch some of the other ones, I think you're going to recognize a lot of, like, The components in matinee, the kind of comedy match with scary stuff, and then those combined with a lot of weird uh, tangents and, like, trying to really throw um, throw the kitchen sink in to do as many things as possible, is pretty consistent across most of his filmography, no matter what he was doing. It's almost like he had, like, this um, OCD where he couldn't quite focus on one thing, and like just kept adding different components, uh, and it's one of the reasons why. And we'll we'll talk about this later when we rank probably Dante movies. Like, and we we discuss Gremlins Two in general, which is ending our month. That people love Gremlins Two a lot because it really is the movie where he just keeps throwing stuff in and never stops. But that that really is the component that kind of goes to a lot of his a lot of his movies. But you know, looking at this, the movie we're going to talk about today, Matinee is ninety three. And then he makes two movies in the next 15 years. Like, he really – he got big. He got – you know, he does uh, Small Soldiers in 98 and then Looney Tunes in 2003 and then doesn't make one until the whole. That's – you know, for someone that we, I think, probably remember as a consistent presence, weird how he got big and then slowed down almost immediately in our terms.
0: And it's also interesting because – All of the movies he was making. So Piranha and The Howling are both kind of grisly and gory. Um, But after that, a lot of his movies were PG, PG-13 kind of movies. So it wasn't like he was making these like roughies. He was making very fun family movies. Like it kind of feels like Joe Dante's career. A lot of it is like what Spielberg would have done if Spielberg had leaned into et or something like spielberg had leaned into like i want to make like family pg-13 pg movies but with like a big special effects focus and uh you know a sense of humor and a a a sense of sort of like belief in in common good in humanity (laughs) like it has it has a lot of spielberg qualities to it the way that some zemeckis movies do and that's no mistake they all felt – helped form each other's careers. So Joe Dante feels like, yes, the other the other tip of the trident
1: between Spielberg and, and Zemeckis. And when people – like when people refer to this movie as like a Joe Dante movie, which for someone who didn't make that many movies, that is a common thing that I'm sure we've all heard a million times. Like Krampus is one off the top of my head that people were like, oh, it's like a Joe Dante movie. And what they mean – when they say like a Joe Dante movie is that it's a movie that mixes comedic and horror elements, but it doesn't detract from the – the one doesn't detract from the other one. So it's not a – it's not a – like a scary movie situation where it's uh, a comedy that is like mocking horror tropes and it's not a Evil Dead movie where it has some funny moments but can still be like a really terrifying experience. It is a movie where the comedy is funny and the scary stuff is scary. And somehow that is able to like work together in a you know, when he does it really well, in a perfect unison.
2: Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from Matinee, is that I was impressed with its ability to be a kid's movie that was and about scary movies and definitely scary concepts, nuclear yep. war. Um, hey, it was cool to watch it with a new fear in my eye too. What with recent events, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm um, sure we're going to get into that more right. because it unfortunately is unfortunately relevant.
0: Is yeah, what is the yeah. term I like to use for these kind of movies. Unfortunately relevant,
2: but it was it. It wasn't. It definitely isn't unnecessary. Necessarily terrifying because otherwise my mom would have never liked it or, or chosen to put it on at all because that's that's not her jam. But it also is never sappy even though it's very earnest and sincere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He has a sense of sentimentality, but he's he has a sense of sentimentality, but it's always well balanced.
1: Right. Because and it's not melodrama.
0: Like yes. it's not modeling.
2: Right. The nu- nuclear, you know, attack is like a real problem. Like no one would, you know, no one would say that it's shying away or candy coating any part of that, you know,
1: portion of history. So, before we get into Matinee more, I guess Peter and I – so, I I kind of – I just mentioned this to Peter and I posted it in our kind of shared film group as well that like I really – Joe Dante a few years ago was someone who I was like, you know, I really like his movies. I'm going to rewatch it and then try to complete his filmography and then I never quite did. But I just started watching more and more Joe Dante movies and I'd always liked the ones I had seen. But I, I started to realize how much I like him as a director and – I was watching uh, I was watching Joe Dante movies before I understood, like, a director made movies and someone made movies. They were bringing sensibilities to each individual one. I think, like, Spielberg was probably the only person I had, like, at a young age, 10 or 12, that, like, I knew that Spielberg was a director. But, like, <laughs> you know, I thought of Spielberg movies as, like, oh, this is the guy that makes good movies each time and movies that I like. And that was, like, it. Yeah, And Joe Dante is one of those directors, I think, you know, sneaks up for you because when you start becoming a quote unquote serious cinephile, you start really getting to Bergman and Kubrick and then you like graduate to the more obscure stuff that they're not teaching in the first year film schools and you end up kind of going down that hole where you're watching a lot of like, you know, sight and sound movies and AFI movies and like the the best quote unquote movies. And they'll, I had a moment, we've talked about this in the podcast before, where I was probably way more into quote-unquote serious film uh, in college especially and kind of ignoring a lot of like the pleasures of you know campy goofy fun movies and as I got a little older in my mid to late 20s and stuff like that I started to kind of go back and watch a lot of that stuff and really Joe Dante is the one that has has stuck so I don't have any like in the way that we did Carpenter and I think you know Peter's been pretty clear that Carpenter is his favorite a director almost too clear. Like, he is not leaving any room for Misty. You gotta leave a, leave a little something special, just in case. Save a little surprise. Why guard my heart, Aaron? Fair enough. So is, uh, but I... I
2: is, oh, go ahead. Is Joe Dante your favorite director, do you think?
1: I think he's my favorite... He is my favorite director. Um, again, I've said Kubrick for so many years because, like, he has made some of my, like, favorite movies that right. leave me in awe, like 2001 or or Dr. Strangelove, or, you know, with The Killing. I mean, he he basically has not made a movie for the most part that I don't love in some way, even if um, I don't have a strong connection to, like, the Clockwork Orange and Full mail Jacket stuff. Like, those are still, like, amazingly directed movies. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, it's like, I you know what? Just because someone makes a lot of, like, your favorite movies, that doesn't necessarily mean they're your favorite director. And Joe Dante doesn't have as many, like, masterpieces as a Kubrick, but from like a sensibility standpoint and like what he was trying to accomplish at any time he made a movie. I would watch a Joe Dante movie any day of the week because what he brought to film was so unique. And many of the films I consider my favorite that I've come up with in the last 20, 25 years are people who are trying to make Joe Dante movies. I think I think if if you can think of your favorite director as like whose sensibilities you enjoy the most and who and who you wish like this is who I wish all of Hollywood would copy from a stylistic perspective, that – as opposed to just who who checks off most of your favorite films, then I would a hundred percent say Joe Dante is my favorite director, yeah. who has also made like some of my favorite films as right. well.
2: Yeah, you know that's interesting because. I was thinking about my favorite director a little while ago. And I think my favorite director doesn't have any films on my top 10 list of all time, which is, which is weird, but I just, but it's a director that is, does really consistent work and also has a really strong voice. Um, and that's Pedro Almodovar. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I love all and I love, you know, um, bad education and the skin I live in. I love a lot of them. Um, but it's really more like the consistency of the output, and like yeah, and like also the consistency of the elements and themes he's playing with make make viewing it as a whole very interesting.
1: Um, exactly. Well, he's another he's another person with a very consistent like tone yeah. and style and aesthetic. Where you're right, it's not just about like a movie that he make that you love. It's like his whole filmography is like all like almost chapters of his story.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Oh, and I also just think, I think, you know, directors who um, have it part of their mission statement to entertain, you know, like a yeah. Zemeckis, like a Joe Dante, um, sometimes, you know, film snobs can write them off, um, you know, un- unnecessarily. And just from, studying, um, you know, political film and how how people relate to it, people basically relate to political film as like, I want none of this, get me out of there, I don't want to see a political film. So to, (laughs) to influence people, you sort of have to like, weave in political themes to narratives that they want to see that would entertain them. So I find it interesting just to see how the public reacts to things like that. And, you know, I've been fascinated with the like the success of Black Panther that year and how uh, this year and how it um, sort of cast the villain as the American perspective. And like people view it yeah. from the villain's perspective or the hero's perspective. And Chadwick Boseman was playing it like the villain. And, you know, Michael B. Jordan was playing it like the hero and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I find that really interesting. Uh, do you guys know if Matinee was a – I don't get the sense that Matinee was a financial success just based on it was a, the number. It was
0: a huge bomb.
2: Yeah, because people haven't seen
0: this movie. <laughs> but you not as big as a nuclear bomb. But no. still no. a big bomb. Right. we
1: close.
2: That is very apt. And when you tell people about it, they're like, that sounds fantastic. I want to watch this movie where John Goodman is an old 50s producer making – Half man, half ant,
1: all terror. Well, and, <laughs> and and you're right though, like Joe Dante is actually as I've 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 rewatched a ton of his stuff recently, kind of preparing for this and finished off his filmography as well. A lot of his stuff is, is more political than you think. And actually even Hollywood Boulevard, which was his first movie for Corman, which was very much an exploitation movie but it's like an exploitation movie that's commenting on on, um, exploitation movies about how like they they don't care about proper safety uh, procedures and how uh, the women that they're getting to star in these movies are like grossly mistreated and taken advantage of and it's like it's pretty it almost feels like a bomb throw of like Hollywood culture in 1976 that like we're still only talking about more now and I think you could criticize that movie easily because it's it's both a criticism of it while still being what it's criticizing. But it was interesting how much he was always kind of weaving these kind of, like, political narratives. Like, Small Soldiers is a good example, which is, like, this anti-nationalism movie that's, like, essentially a kid movie about toys coming to life. Uh, and you can kind of go through the list and kind of see a lot of those kind of uh, woke messaging and in his politics for the vast majority of his movies until Bearing the X, which is like this weird misogynistic piece of garbage that feels really not of a piece with the rest of his um, filmography. Uh, but before we uh, go more into Matt name, Peter, I want to make sure you have some time to talk about uh, just your overall thoughts on Dante.
0: Uh, yeah, I think we I, I think we've sort of tapped into some of his magic, but it's going to take the whole month to really summarize like what he does so beautifully. And I think that this movie, when we when we get into the second half of this episode, when we get into what matinee does so specifically. We will kind of reveal what what uh, Dante does so specifically that I don't think other people do. And so yeah, do you guys want to talk about matinee? Yeah, yeah.
1: Let's talk about matinee.
0: I think you are alternate taglines. Never preparing beforehand has always worked out great for us, right?
2: Look look at those things that I came up with about myself, having totally forgotten about my responsibility to do that beforehand.
0: <laughs> so that went
2: great. We're just doing it by the seat of our pants.
1: I like the idea of our guest taunting uh, Peter for not being able to come up with alternate taglines fast enough. <laughs>
0: it's because I really relate to it. <laughs> this is how you get invited back. Ignore the citizens for decent entertainment and see matinee.
1: Brandy. Um, <laughs> what do we what do we got here? Uh, how about see a matinee of matinee?
0: See a matinee of matinee because <laughs> it costs doubles because it's times two <laughs> times two. Baby boomers go boom.
1: Mm. We can be done with this. Yeah, we can. We can <laughs> you, 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 you uh, so the quick recap of the movie is uh, John Goodman plays a uh, film producer back in like the old 50s, 60s days where like you just made a movie and then you tried to get it into as many theaters as possible, which is something I learned about uh, occurred from the movie Ed Wood. It's like, that's like a really forgotten part of like how film distribution used to work, but... Uh, that is where I first heard of that, but he's one of, because I didn't see Matinee until later, uh, but he has made a lot of, uh, you know, 60s flavor horror cheapies, exploitation uh, films, and he has a new one coming out called Mant. Mant. Which is about a man who turns into an ant, and I'm going to say it right now, I said Gremlins 2 is my favorite Chiodante movie. I think if we're counting every scene of Mant, it's Mant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because Mant is amazing. Uh, but we'll talk about that more later. Uh, so it is, a, well, actually, I'll just get into what the movie's about. So it is a, you know, standard like 60s uh, monster movie where someone gets bitten by a radioactive ant because atomic uh, – the atomic age is scary and turns into an ant. And that movie is shown in like, I think a total of like 15, 20 minutes is shown uh i know on the blu-ray which i really want to get i think they have the entire like cut together of what they shot for it oh, nice. but i wasn't able to get it before uh before recording this so anyway so there is a boy who lives on a military base with his younger brother and they go to these movies cuz he moves al- around a lot uh his dad is stationed on one of the uh, blockade ships in the cuban missile crisis and he goes to new school has trouble making some friends but eventually kind of does make a friend uh, both of the him and his friend have some crushes. Uh, he eventually ends up meeting John Goodman's character who comes to town. And of course, because he uh, his only friends were were these kind of horror scary movies. He knows who John Goodman is. Uh, and he kind of uh, follows him around and ends up getting to, like, hear his philosophy on movies and kind of work on this new 4D extravaganza where they're shaking seats and doing crazy stuff. So to try to – because I feel like you could talk about the plot of this movie because, like, a lot of Joe Dante movies, it goes in a million different directions. So they end up all going to see Matt at the theater. Uh, a lot of different things happen. Um, the ex-boyfriend of one of the high school girls tries to, kid- to kidnap her. Uh, because uh, he uh, doesn't like that she's seeing uh, the, the, this new guy. They get locked in a nuclear uh, fallout shelter, uh, and the theater ends up falling apart. And at the end, they learn about the power of movies. Uh, the end. <laughs> there's, I mean, I could talk about the plot of this movie probably for 20 minutes, because there's a million different things that go it's- on. Because it does just bounce from one idea to the other while having this amazing through line. But I guess I think um, the plot would better be served from pulling out those things and talking about it through scenes as we go through it. So, Joey, I actually think – uh, so we we'll talk a little bit about our personal history with this movie. Joey, I think it makes sense to, to start with you because this was your Joe Dante movie that you watched many times as a kid.
2: Yes. Um yeah, like I said, um, my mom could never remember that it wasn't called Mant, um, and I think she would love that special feature that's just Mant, um, uh, and- Well,
1: I'll tell you what, if she's looking for it alphabetically, she's probably still going to find it, because <laughs> Matt and Mant are very close. Right.
2: Yeah, no, that's, and, and that was a good way to remember, and I'm, you know, I bet there's method to that madness. I bet they did that on purpose. <laughs> um, but, you know- it probably would have been a catchier title if they just called it Mant. Because, like, honestly, that's what people remember first, I think. And John yeah. Um, But also, let's take a minute to acknowledge that we are living in an age today where this kind of interactive movie theater experience is happening if you go see a movie in 4D the way that I did Black Panther. And the first thing I saw, I, I said when I saw... 4D includes water spraying at you and the chair, you know, hitting you in the back and things like that. Was like, oh my God, we're living in the time of Mant. like <laughs> the technologic the technology is here and uh after we saw black panther i was about to show my boyfriend matinee just to be like there's a whole movie about this man uh but uh, <laughs> but yeah we we actually didn't get to it um so he still hasn't seen it 4, 4d is pretty fun um it, it's as fun as uh matinee promised
0: um but yeah, do you, uh, do you have any other sort of background with this movie before we move on cuz like I am really happy that you found something that you had a lot of engagement from.
2: Yeah, um yeah, I mean not really. I can talk like as we go through it. Okay, re- perfect. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about the things that I remembered and the things that I did not remember at all.
1: <laughs> Aaron, what's your history? Yeah, so I I was very aware of this movie. Um, because I worked in a video store and would pore over video stores, and I really liked John Goodman King Ralph. But this was, again, not knowing that, that this was a Joe Dante movie and probably wouldn't have cared if I would have known at the time either, this had an unfortunate thing that was extremely common at video stores. But when you are younger and only get to pick one or two movies tops – because everyone else in the family needs to pick movies, well, you are essentially, like, either picking movies that were more recent that you saw previews of or, like, stuff that all the kids talked about, or you were picking them based on how cool their cover looked. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this and The Burbs and a lot of other movies had two things going against it for me, like, randomly picking it up. One, they had the worst kind of generic cover where it's just the star on the uh on the on the on the vhs cover so it's like just tom hanks holding uh you know a shock wire in the burbs or in matinee it's just John goodman pointing to a movie theater which is like yeah i okay so what it's a movie about movies that sounds really dumb i don't want to go see that uh and then also kind of a generic title like matinee Uh, you're right joey mant would be way better you show i really yeah i really like the uh the scream factory cover which has um like a scene from um ant depicted in animation or mant depicted in animation
2: um while i was sitting here I decided that even Mantine would be better than Matinee.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's all you had to go by if you weren't familiar with all... Like, it was just like, okay, well, here's the cover. And The Burbs, too, was a very generic title. And the video store was littered with, like, here's the stars in the movie. Here's Joe Pesci on the cover. Generic title. I have no idea if it's good or not. Here's, you know, uh, Rob Williams on the cover. Here's this. And if it wasn't, like, a star... Even though I liked John Goodman, I liked tom hanks like if it wasn't like one of my favorite like kid star stuff which i guess rob williams would have uh would have would have definitely hit that it was like of course i'm not gonna waste a rental on this picture of tom hanks sitting in the street or john goodman pointing to a movie sign like it doesn't it didn't give me anything so i was aware of it i ignored it it wasn't until much later where i was like oh i need to fill some joe dante holes and uh uh, and I watched it and I absolutely loved it and watching again for this I loved it even more like this is it's just I'll get some hyperbole out of the way like this is a true like love letter to cinema and but a very specific kind of cinema like the cinema that influenced Joe Dante and that's a cinema a type of cinema and a type of movie that has influenced uh, indirectly a lot through the people that took the influence from those kind of B 50s and 60s movies and influence like my love of cinema. So this – I saw someone uh, when I was talking a little bit about uh, uh, Joe Dante in in the in the Facebook group we were part of mentioned like this is like their version of Cinema So and I 100% feel that way. Like this, this is like an ode to what it feels like to be a kid to go see a movie about how it's like the biggest thing you're going to do all week in, in a theater, the experience of going to a theater, the experience of – like getting sucked up in this world to uh, ignore everything that's going on in your life and just like take you away from your problems for a little bit Uh, because making the way in the world today takes everything you got, Uh, (laughs) taking away a break from all your troubles sure would help a lot. (laughs) Um, Wow, that's really
0: profound, Darren.
2: Would you, yeah, would you say you want to go where everybody knows your, your name?
1: No, I like to go incognito, a little more anonymous, Mm. but I, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, It's good to know where everyone stands on uh, whether you want strangers to know your name. Sure. (laughs) The bartender to know your name. Um, But so this, so yeah, this really is like a love letter to uh, cinema. I feel uh, extremely hyperbolic and, and lame saying that, but in this case, it's true And I just, I love everything about this movie. Peter, this was a
0: new experience for you. All new, baby. It's a, uh, this is a new experience for me. I had never seen it before a couple days ago. It was one of those Dante's that I was kind of putting off because of the cover. I was like... Yeah, that cover really sunk it. Because I fucking love John Goodman. But like in the mid 90s, especially like sort of rising off that Roseanne fame, he... He had some trouble in movies, the Flintstones, Borrowers, King Ralph, like he cannot seem to be in a good movie that wasn't made by the Coens for a period of time. So I, I kept putting it off. And then when the show popped up, I was like, yeah, that seems like something we could we could definitely dive into. It seems like a good fit for this show. And I didn't even realize how much of a good fit it is because it, it is about a a little horror movie kid who loves horror movies his mom actually says at one point you can go see a movie without a monster for once <laughs> like she's just trying to get him out of the house to go do the thing and yet they end up seeing some like shitty awful uh z- like zany 50s comedy um, starring
1: naomi- fucking naomi yeah, watts that's that, something that i didn't amazed. notice in
2: the mid 90s no. right Yes. yes well no one did right of course yes. not but now they t- yes. they tout it she's on the cast list on the Letterbox list right it's like one of those oh, experiences a- like like michael Sarah is on the cast list for frequency because he plays the friend's kid but it's like okay you got famous afterwards
1: <laughs> yes i i didn't even notice it the first time i saw it which would have been like four or five years ago and i do definitely knew who naomi watts was but this time i was like is that fucking Naomi Wazman? Like, I ran to IMDb to see if she was right. in this movie. I'm like, no way. 93. I always forget that, like, movie stars don't, like, start right. with their big movie and have been working for years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it's so that, that sort of, that sort of, um, your parents make you watch some movie or they make you go see some movie just because it's, like, uh, you know, it's some crap, but, like, you're always hungry for the next movie big horror movie, the next big genre movie, the next big monster movie. That experience was like, and they were anticipating the next, th- th- that movie. They were waiting like weeks for it as John Goodman is building up the hype for it. Like that was all super relatable to me. And it also it fits with the show really, really well as well. The, the The fact that it is about this like earnest, very sentimental, very like honest love letter to cinema bullshit and warts and all (laughs) is really awesome. Like there's a lot of, you already said cinema Paradiso, but like some of my favorite movies are about filmmaking, like directly or indirectly. Like Ed Wood is like one of my favorite movies ever. I really love shadow of a vampire. I love the idea of creatives talking about their own field in that way. Um, It can be the most circle jerky experience possible. (laughs) Like sometimes hollywood making movies about hollywood is like the worst thing ever but when it works it's just it it
1: works um well and you don't even have to i mean joey maybe you can speak to this better like as a kid i could easily see this movie like not even being like oh it's about all this crazy shit that's happening not necessarily like a movie about movie making or hollywood like i feel like you could enjoy this movie on a purely like wild ride entertainment level
2: yeah i would have liked it as a kid It's good because it has a kid protagonists um, and it really does see the world through a kid's eyes. But like the real world, not like some sanitized version, Um, because I was a weird kid who liked dark things. Um, I really liked the uh, like Cold War fear element. Although when I was a kid, I saw me making the connection between the Cold War fear and the Mant movie, I thought I was pretty great for noticing that, whereas this time around I'm like, oh, like clearly they're trying to get us to make that connection like every step of the way.
1: Um <laughs> well and also what's really fun about that is like while the kids are going to this fantastical movie, everything in on the periphery of what's happening to the kids is like a really well shot war movie. But like, because the whole yeah. movie is f- through a kid's eyes, it's almost like they're walking through a different genre of movie every day to go see this other genre that they love.
2: Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's awesome. I hadn't even thought about it that way. But you're absolutely right. And I had forgotten to how long that section is, right? Like, it's like half the movie until we get to the Mamp movie. And then the climax of the movie is... At the theater takes the is longer than a lot of movie climaxes <laughs> yeah. too, right? Like it just yeah. it goes it's on in like real it's,
0: time. The right? second half of the movie is basically real time,
2: right? Right. Um. uh So yeah, I like I and I liked it. My mom and I had, would have trouble choosing movies because she likes funny things and I like I liked really dark, sad things. But you can actually there are some movies that you know are either ambiguous enough so that she can just assume optimism and I assume pessimism or Something like this that, like, really blends the two and becomes also about how you use film to process real things and real fears that you have in your life.
1: Well, holy shit, that makes sense that you guys would love this movie because this movie literally ends with uh, John Goodman saying – Yep, look at that. Those kids are gonna make it. It's a wonderful world, and then uh, the next line is like, "Well, until we all try to blow each other up three years yeah. later." Yeah. So <laughs> all you have there's like there's like the 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 summation of this movie is two not contradictory statements, but like one statement that feeds directly into what it sounds like your mother loves, yeah. and another one that feeds directly into what you would attach yourself to,
2: definitely. And this time, this hadn't occurred to me in previous viewings, but this time it occurred to me like. Is the movie critical at all of John Goodman for sort of taking this nuclear war threat panic and trying to profit from it? Like, is there a reading of that?
0: he genuinely thinks he's helping people. The last thing in the movie is he's basically seeing, he sees movies as this sort of carpe diem, you know, live life today. This is sort of beautiful experience you can go through in a microcosm. You go in the movie, you forget your your real troubles, you watch the movie, you get scared, you you get hopeless, and then you get out of the movie and you feel a wave of relief. And I think he sees that all as like, um, a way to, a way for he sees movies as a way for people to deal with terrifying times, which I think is like a really beautiful sentiment for for a movie. And yes, he's also doing it to get rich and famous, but I think I think we can believe him because of the context he's saying these these quotes to, and he's saying it to people that don't really need to buy his bullshit. He's saying it to, like, the kid who's not really, like, helping him until the end. Like, a kid who he could have just, like, been like, well, yeah, the movie uh, premiere was great. Like, see ya. That's what I, that's yeah. at least the way I read it, is that, like, he, he's he's he seems like a cynic at the end of the movie. You're like, oh, he just
1: really fucking loves movies and believes they have a transformative power. And I actually, like, that's actually one of the things I love about the movie is that in most other movies John Goodman's character is like this cynic who takes advantage of everyone a monster and he's not like he has all of those like I'm a I'm a flim flan man characteristics but then as the movie gets to know him it's like he wants to make really good movies he does care about the way his movies are perceived he does like Peter said want to transport people from like this like shitty world that he didn't he didn't make but If he's going to live in it, he's going to do something he thinks he's good at. And then on top of that, like, if you ever think he is more concerned with his movie than anything else, there's the part where he walks away from the guy who basically he needs to impress to sell his movie to and make money in order to, like, save these kids. Like, he stops everything he's doing. But, like, it it fits with his character. Like, yeah, of course he wants to be a showman but he also like doesn't want these kids to die in this theater and so he's gonna stop what could be like he's gonna stop mid sales pitch and leave the person there while he goes and like does a does something that someone like a Robert Picardo is like unable to do because instead of like living in the world in the way that he's figured out how to, like John Goodman, he's like Robert Picardo, the movie manager's character is completely like handicapped and uh, traumatized by it.
0: Yeah. And and in that scene when... The kid calls him out as bullshit. There's uh there's these citizens for decent entertainment. Yeah, which yeah I want to talk about this. Yes. This <laughs> is uh, he hired protesters to raise, you know, awareness of the movie. And I, and I want to get into the William Castle stuff here. But like, I, I really do want to talk about how John Goodman's character, because it's very interesting. Joey brought up a great point. Um, When the kid finally sees through his bullshit, John Goodman realizes he can't bullshit him any longer. He's like, you know what, kid, I'm going to take you under my wing. And he tells him this myth of the caveman and the mammoth about he's he, he a yeah. uh, caveman sees a mammoth one day. He almost dies. He goes back home. He draws a, a drawing in a cave of the mammoth to sort of tell the story, maybe as a warning, maybe just like to, you know, t- just to communicate, you know, that this was this is my story. But he's drawing it and he's making it scarier and more. He's making the teeth longer and the tusks longer. And like that sort of. Cause he knows people are going to come see it and people are going to want to hear a story and like, it needs to be a better story and it needs to communicate how he felt. So it's a little bit, it's, it's not, you know, necessarily factually correct, but it's, it, it's capturing the subjective experience that he felt he, the, to him. The tusks were three stories tall and the feet were as wide as tree trunks and all that. Um, and I think that's the movie in a microcosm because it's, he's a bullshitter, but he's a bullshitter who like genuinely loves this stuff and he loves playing the game. He just really likes to win more, a lot.
2: Yeah. And it's okay to tweak or exaggerate in order to get more people to see your movie. And if it sort of conveys the same emotion as you're, you were trying to get across.
0: So I really want to, I really want to talk about William Castle. I've been dying to talk about William Castle. Go for So it. he is based on
1: William Castle to a T. Great. Thanks for sharing, Peter. Next um, topic. <laughs> William
0: Castle <laughs> made all sorts of fun B-movies back in the 50s and 60s. He never quite transcended out of the B-movie thing. Um, he a lot of Vincent Price stuff. Yes, and he did a uh, house on haunted hill, mm-hmm. which is sort of uh, the opposite of like the haunting. It's like a very goofy, sort of funny, like spooky, uh, spooky horror movie. So the house on haunted hill. One of the tricks he had was a skeleton with these like uh, glowing red eyes would fly over the the um, the screen and fly over into the balcony um, during a certain point in the movie to scare people, literally. John Goodman's character floats that as an idea for his next movie. <laughs> and he also, for each one of these movies, he had a um, a name for it. In a, in MANT, doesn't he call it like a Vision or something? Yeah. He was just constantly rebranding what his gimmicks, right? And The Tingler was a movie he made about this creature that attaches to the, your spine. And then the only way to kill it is by screaming. And... Um, but you'd feel it. And so he would have these percepto chairs that would like, they were, um, de-icers from like military planes so they would vibrate under your butt during certain parts of the movie to make you think that the tingler had grabbed your your spinal cord and to make you scream and vincent price actually says at one point in the movie scream scream for your lives and that's what it's based on in the movie it's like a it's like a it actually gives you a little bit of a shock but that's um that was more that's more of an apocryphal thing they didn't actually shock you they just sort of gave you a little buzz
2: I would assume um, that would open you up to some lawsuits.
0: Yeah, 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 And then there was thirteen ghosts. You wore special glasses that made you see ghosts in the movie a little bit more clearly. Uh, you could see that them was also the that's also an idea. He
1: floats at the end, right? Yes.
0: All of these are in the movie. These are all William Castle ideas. Joe Dante. I think maybe it was just for legal reasons couldn't call him that. There was this thing with homicidal. I really want to get into because he like. He gave people uh, a break, a chance to leave the movie and get a full refund after like fifteen minutes, and you know take the coward's way out. So the movie takes a break,
1: like fifteen minutes <laughs> of oh, <yeah>. the movie. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> and and then well, and they re- they reversed that in this movie where they lock the doors and won't let yeah. anyone leave. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Another lawsuit.
0: <laughs> yes. And and this was for a movie called Homicidal, which was him reacting to Psycho. When Psycho, they wouldn't let anybody into the theater at, uh, after, you know, the opening credits or whatever. William Castle's like, um, these are B movies. Like, that's not how you treat B movies. Yeah. You need to have the exact opposite. Like, give people a bailout point so people can kind of be united in their terror if one or two people leave. Um and like for the cap, co- the the he also did this thing where he like really wanted people not to take the coward's way out because then he wouldn't have it. So he had like a yellow line on the floor and a yellow lights that would have to go on people and that would play a mm-hmm. tape that would that would say like watch the chicken like this dude's a coward. And when you got there, you would have to sign a yellow little card saying like I'm a bona fide coward. Oh man, <laughs> so he did all these. William Castle did all this crazy fun. And shit like the, the last one there's there's a ton of stuff he did but the last one i'll, I'll share um, was for mr sardonicus he had a thing partway through the movie there's this evil dude and at the end of the movie he says like i want you to say how much we punish this guy and so he gave out these uh knobs to people like punish him spare him kind of thing and then he would talk to the audience be like oh a lot of you said we should punish him there's a lot of merciless people in this audience and then they would show the scene of this guy being punished the trick is he never there's no switching of reels there's no switching right. of film he, the uh, no matter what the audience votes for mr sardonicus is being punished uh, he's lucky a,
2: that people are reliably sadistic
1: yes yes so there's well also there's no ballot counters right yes right
2: well also the people who don't want to punish wouldn't go to a horror film at all well exactly yeah
1: exactly
0: so not to spend an insane amount of time on william castle but this movie is about william castle i wanted to dive into some of the fun tricks because this is part of horror history that like i'm very passionate about but i'm not
1: sure if we're going to cover any of his movies anytime soon Um, And you can see, like, this movie is so good at replicating that these movies were designed without the concept of home video. Right. Which is why, you know, in this movie, like, there's those parts where, like, the ant person needs to run through the audience. And so everyone's, like, commenting on what the ant person in the audience is doing, which obviously doesn't translate well to if it was going to a home video market where you'd be like, do we fast forward this? I don't understand what's, what's going on. Uh, but obviously, no one ever had the foresight. It was like, you just try to make your money in the, in the theater, and then it goes away forever. I really like that. I also like how, just from John Goodman's character perspective, how excited he is every time one of his uh, tricks works with the audience. Like, he is super excited that it works, and... It's especially funny in this movie because it's like he literally electrifies the seats and people jump out of their chairs and he's like, yes, can't believe that worked. They really, they really, they really jumped up when they were electrified. It's like, yeah, you, you know, you electrocuted them. Right.
0: But, tr- but 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 uh, Harvey Starkweather, which I think is riffing off Charles Starkweather, the murderer. Harvey Starkweather turned the dials up too high. Right. That's another weird thing about this movie is that characters, you never really know where any of the character arcs are going, but you know what motivates the characters. So like, yeah. you never expect that Harvey Starkweather is going to end up in the mant suit being hired by, uh, <laughs> being hired by Larry to, to, to run the knobs and play with all the effects backstage. And then, you know, Larry's going to see, see his, uh, ex-girlfriend getting you know necked by the kid from Hocus Pocus and they're gonna they're, and then he's gonna come and start attacking him really really hard and then Larry gets attacked trying to defend the boy because he knows this is going a little too far and then he gets punched out by Harvey and then Larry in Perfect Larry thing stands up and people start clapping because they're like, oh, that was all part of the show. Like people are in on the fun. People people know that they were they got shocked. They people know that. like, Yeah. It's not really the mant, but like the fun of it is is the deal. That's the deal.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just considered Harvey in the mant suit, one of those, you know, fun suspension of disbelief movie things where all the characters have to be at the same place
0: for the climax to happen. What do we think of the lead character? The blonde kid. He's <laughs> a little
2: bland,
0: but... He's very bland, right? especially compared to Lisa Jacob, who's so fun. Oh, yeah. Is she, she is. She is.
2: Is she the girl? She's amazing.
0: Yeah, she's the girl. His girl. girl, the 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 little communist girl. Right. No, I know. I was going (laughs) to say she's woke as fuck. Am I allowed to swear on this? Um, You can swear as much as you want. She hates war and she loves black people. No, I know. And then she is ahead
2: of her time. That part of the movie (laughs) aged fantastically. You're like, wow. And you're like, yeah, you are sort of like, she's sort of too good for him almost. She said she's like so adorable. And she also is
0: just like so strong in her convictions. That would have been a girl that would have destroyed me at thirteen. Like, I would have been obsessed <laughs> with that girl at thirteen because, like, she's just she's fun and engaging, and she's like got political like conviction and she stands up to authority when authority is yeah. full of shit. Like, yeah. th- Oh my god, that that would have ruined me as a thirteen year old. But then also, like, I don't know. The blonde kid is boring as fuck.
1: Yeah. But he yeah, worked- you can see why he doesn't have any friends. I I think he's using the. Transferring towns is an excuse, but he's, he's just kind of a <laughs> yeah. Because dude. the kid
0: is a the, the human equivalent
2: of a glass of skim milk. He reminded me of the oldest brother on Home Improvement, which is just like
0: <laughs> okay. You're like you're not the weird you're not the weird one, and you're not the cute one.
2: But the other the other girl is played by Kelly Martin, who is in all kinds yeah. of stuff back in the day. Yes.
1: yes, you're right. And I thought her and Katie Couric were the same people for quite a you lot got of time kelly martin age, and however. katie kirk were the same people were the same person they're not even similar ages or jobs true <laughs> but i was like eight or nine and they or and they looked a lot alike maybe i thought it was like a mom's daughter situation but i i definitely thought there was some connection there when i was like 10 yeah but yeah there's there's two love stories going on in this movie which Maybe would have repelled me as a kid, because as a kid,
0: girls, uh, the whole, like, romantic thing, like, was just not interesting to me in any sort of movies. Like, I huh. I was interested in uh, being in love in real life, but as a kid, I was like, anytime that there would be a romance story, I'd be kind of like, who gives a shit? So this movie actually, like, Super 8 and Stand By Me is maybe not like a kid-kid movie. I think it's like a 10 to 15 kind of movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, like, what age it's actually approaching, because I think the nuclear terror stuff is, like, pretty spooky for a kid. A lot of the sex jokes are, I mean, probably not for kids that, like, aren't at least sort of playing around, like... I watched this movie younger and I enjoyed it, but I couldn't
2: I couldn't tell you actually how young I was the first time I saw it. It uses
0: a lot of euphemisms for right. sex stuff, right. which I think keeps, keeps a lot of kids safe, right? I don't think it's teaching you anything, but I think that there's like a lot of euphemisms and stuff you would get when you get a little right. older and maybe appreciate a little better.
2: Definitely. That's it.
1: A- yeah, this is one of those movies that's like, there's probably like an age where... Like it's, it's cool to watch it for – it's cool to let your kids watch it like from ages five to nine and then like you get uncomfortable watching it from like 10 to 13 and then like 14. You're like, oh, it's fine. They
0: understand all this stuff now. <laughs> yeah. They get it. But there is a scene where the kids get locked in a in a fallout shelter yeah. and they start talking about uh, Lisa Re- Jacob and Blondie McBlond. Yeah, they start talking yeah. about repopulating the earth and they – They want to get to it pretty fast. Um, Thank God the parents come in when they do. (laughs) I like how they can't get out from the inside, that that's like impossible. Yeah, obviously. I, I don't think they tried that hard. <laughs> sure, they no. wanted to make babies. Um. <laughs> they're like, "Oh no, we're locked in here forever. Oh, oh. oh everyone we
1: know is dead." <laughs> uh, I also I want to do want to give a shout out to Lisa Jacobs' uh, characters' parents, who are awesome and hilarious. <laughs> they're in like beatniks, yeah, and they're like, "They're well, I don't know if we like uh, her seeing this movie, but it, you know." It's scientific, but about nuclear age, it's going to be an educational
0: experience. <laughs> it is? And then they
1: walk out like, I don't think that was educational
0: at all. <laughs> I, th- I love that, okay, so it is clear here that Joe Dante, a old hippie, clearly sides with the hippies, he's willing to tease them lightly, but his ire is entirely reserved for the panickers and yeah. the moral authority people and the people that would seek to shut down art, like that his ire is all reserved for those people. And then when there's hippies in the movie, he kind of like, he idolizes the girl. The girl is so cool. And then the parents, like he kind of lightly teases them, but they're like, seem like they're pretty cool parents. Like he doesn't actually make fun of them the way like the Simpsons did. And I love the Simpsons, but the Simpsons had a lot of show writers on
1: the show who like hated hippies. And it shows. I think Joe Dante taps into like, even though his like, parental counsel is fake. He taps into something that like how ridiculous it is to try to censor a movie when – a literal real life horror is going on yeah. like these kids are walking to school while like people are doing military drills and holding guns and they're trying to that type of like person is trying to stop them from from like experiencing an entertainment like that's what their their ire isn't focused on like stopping war or real life horrors but like how do we how do we stop people from having an outlet or an escape from the real life Right. horrors that That's occurring. And even though, again, his his people are fake, that is a extremely common thing that we're living through. And before I, I don't want to forget um, one of the best lines in the movie they're talking about where uh, John Goodman's like, well, come on, let's what about freedom of speech? And one of his proxies says, hey, there's no First Amendment in the Ten Commandments, pal. It's like it's a great line. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> also seems like something uh, someone could say on a, with a straight face on Fox News right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes. It's also so pointless to try and control the horror movies these kids are watching. Like it's not about taking away their coping device, it's about people wanting to feel control over their life so they try and control this thing that would be easier to control that like stopping the Cuban missile crisis.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's small, a small manageable thing that is in your town and you can you can put up your protest or you can stop your kids from seeing but like at the end of the day like you're not making your world any safer you're just making yourself sleep a little better at night.
2: Right, you're fooling
0: yourself. Yes. And these kids- You're actually making your world more more scary and smaller.
2: Yeah. Also, yeah, it would it would make a kid more scared. I think to one to be aware of like the nuclear, you know, the consequences of nuclear war, and then not be allowed to see this scary movie everyone's talking about because it's so dangerous. Right? You would be even more scared of the movie. Which movie is well, that again? You know, like MANT in general. Like I'm just saying, if MANT.
1: yeah i mean they're literally and and again the great the great moment in this movie is like how much horror they're inflicting on children where they have the duck and cover scene which they don't it starts out as like a joke because it was a joke even by the you know by the 90s it was like haha can't believe we used to duck and cover and instead of making it a quick joke or an easy joke joe dante holds on all those kids sitting in a fucking hallway waiting for the bombs to drop while, you know, they uh, he lets, like, uh, Lisa Jacob kind of go through all the reasons why this is a terrible thing. And it, like, stops being played for laughs very quickly. And it becomes, like, this real life, oh, this is the life that these kids are living through because of, like, forces they can't control. Like, their dad's gone because they're, you know, on a ship somewhere because of a... Uh, a war and then every day sometimes they are not every day but some days they just go march in the hallway and pretend that sticking their head in their knees for a while will stop them from dying and like as an adult and watching this that is the most like horrific scene in the movie I, you know i don't know what the alternative is to to like just have like a drill where it's okay go stick your head in your knees and hope this saves you um you're never gonna see your family again let's think on it for a little bit is horrific but also the way of life for these people at this point
2: yeah i so every time we watched this movie right after the movie my mom would tell me about how they had to do like nuclear bomb drills and like what that was like and how they knew it was
1: pointless let's why don't we talk about math a little bit um, yeah let's talk about the
0: Mant. actual movie half within man the movie.
2: half ant all terror
1: <laughs> we're gonna do yeah. another break so we can talk about MANT. <laughs> i don't know what the theme song is for MANT, but uh i wasn't kidding when i said if this was a full-length movie it might be my favorite joe dante movie there you know it's the old rule of how hard i think this is to do because it is hard to like i'm gonna make a 60s sci-fi movie that is like actually really still hitting all the tropes, but then being legitimately hilarious in its own right. Um, I kind of almost liken it to the thing they used to say about like 30 rock and studio 60 where like studio 60 failed because it was supposed to be this really funny show. And then they showed skits and the show, the skits were ter- like sub sub Saturday night live. And then everyone's talking about the work of genius and like that dichotomy can't work where 30 rock is about the show And part of the joke is that all the skits are terrible. So when they show skits, they don't have to, you know, put any effort into them or somehow become like create genius sketch comedy. And I feel like showing this much of Mance is the same sort of hat trick that Studio 60 couldn't pull off where it's like we're going to make a hilarious movie with a through line that would be – amazingly entertaining in its own right because we need to show you a lot of it and but then it needs to still fit in the context of the rest of the movie and that's that's like a, a real magic trick i think that dante pulled off here
2: yeah definitely um it made me think of this other movie from the early aughts um you guys might not even have heard of it uh the lost
1: skeleton of cadaver okay. i was wondering if you were gonna say yeah that. yes i have I have heard of it and I have seen it. It reminded me of that as well.
2: But I don't think that movie was very good. Like I went with no. friends and like I had it was like one of those times right where you're like giggling and making jokes, you know, in between things so it was okay that the movie was like the jokes like the jokes in MANT are better than the jokes in Lost Skeleton of Cadabra and like the jokes in MANT aren't carrying an entire movie, right? Like
1: Yeah, I feel like it could. The Lost Skeleton was a movie I really wanted to yeah. like because I loved what it was doing and it it's like uh, there was another one too that starred uh, Eric McCormick. Oh wow. Um,
2: that would be distracting in your old movie. If you're doing a fake old movie, you shouldn't cast people who are recognizable, I think.
1: Uh, it's like Alien Trespass. That's what it was called. It was also supposed to be like a a straight face sixties movie and it just it was kinda of lost skeleton level. It just wasn't that good. Yeah. This this does this does a good job of like still finding the comedy in it. And making the characters say legitimately very funny things about what's going on, but somehow still make it work in the context of a movie, which then still has to work in the context of another movie.
2: Right. Um, Also, like, let's give it up for Kathy Moriarty, because I thought she was great here. And I wish that she got more roles today, because she's awesome. Um, And I think that...
1: She She was in something I just saw recently. Oh, good. Oh, um
2: uh patty cakes oh okay i yeah that's on my to watch but i haven't i haven't seen it yet oh good i'm glad i love her i love her voice um yeah and i think that like sort of like her over the top delivery like you could see like a katherine keener in that role uh, sorry a katherine um uh kathleen turner in that role too you know i think it's like the smoke oh the yeah. smoky voice and the over the top delivery really helps make the man parts you know as good <laughs> yeah. as they are um, I also forgot that the thing that shocks everyone in the audience is the mant hand grabbing her butt. Yes. <laughs> I totally had forgot that. I was like, oh, wow. That is horrifying on another level, right?
0: <laughs> so. You're like, you can all feel uh, a, a empathy you can, instead of sympathy. Right, right.
2: <laughs> you too can be this bombshell blonde getting harassed by her mutant aunt boss.
0: <laughs> oh, I think the best line in it and the whole thing is when they're, they have all the military guys standing around, they're – gonna shoot at the man who's crawling up a building and he goes, you know, he's not a monster. He's a shoe salesman. And then the, the soldier turns around and goes, would you let that fit you into a pump? Yeah. Like, (laughs) I love those little, those little like jokes that it's like, yeah, they actually in, in 50 sci-fi movies, they would make little snide remarks and stuff. And soldiers would actually take time to
1: talk to people and stuff because like the, They couldn't show the ant for the whole thing. So you needed like these scenes between like the dentist and you needed like the weird subplots. I I love the whole thing with like that the dentist is still focused on teeth the entire time. (laughs) Like that is a great run of the way that he when he turns into an ant. I love when he turns into an ant. I got great news though. Your teeth are fantastic. And then like he still is like, well, this is no excuse to not have your checkups. Yeah. And then, of course, he turns into an ant. But he's very committed to his, uh, uh, and also apparently waiting in the wings for you know how your dentist is like constantly waiting for your husband to turn into an ant.
2: Yeah, so that you can totally. make your move.
1: <laughs> it's totally that's a great '60s like limited cast, <laughs> right. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, well, sort of like how this movie has the ex-boyfriend in the ant suit backstage, right? Yeah, everything has to come together in a big climax. But yeah, I love when he reveals, when the dentist reveals his his man claw when she's in the chair. Yeah. It's just like, just the performance and the timing is just, it's just, because you know it's coming, right? And then when it comes, yeah. you're like, oh my God, somehow this ant claw is bigger than I thought it would be, like more ridiculous, right? Because like, if someone was really in that situation, they could obviously see his his ant claw, right? Like, yeah. if it wasn't like the <laughs> reveal for a movie. <laughs>
1: The other thing that sells it really well is that uh, the makeup effects on the Mant character is amazing.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's funny that they had to make two versions of the Mant costume, one for the one that would have been believably shitty, and then one that, like, would have actually, like, made it into the movie and they would have spent the time and money on. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And then, of course, it has a twist ending at the the end um, where the, yeah, the the dentist, which I don't know why – the wife is still going to this dentist. Um, comes <laughs> Maybe out and he's says the only dentist checkup. in town. That is that is something that people don't yeah. talk about enough with horror movies. They're like, why is everything in a small town? I was like, because in small towns, everybody has to see each other. Like, you don't right. you don't need 900 characters. Like, that's also why shows like the, the Marvel shows make New York seem super small. Because, like, everybody just runs into everybody all the time. We're like, that doesn't necessarily happen in cities ever.
2: Yeah, definitely. And also, like, if there's only a couple different police officers, then you can have some reason that people can't just go to the police officers, <laughs> right? Like, I was gonna say yeah. at the beginning of this segment, as someone who's only getting into horror movies now as an adult, um, and like, I'm pretty into like the indie horror trend that's happening. Um, all horror movies are sort of comedies. In their way, right? Because it's always a little ridiculous. Like, that's why teenagers are so great in them, because teenagers don't think like other people. They're like, oh, you know, there's someone chasing us that's going to kill us. Let's go to a boat or my parents boathouse that's abandoned up north in the wilderness instead of like oh let's call the police.
1: Yeah. Oh, we're not missing prom just cuz <laughs> eight of our friends are dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's what I was talking about with the burning
0: is that like one of the, the scary thing about teen horror is like yes there's a killer out there but also like you don't want to risk embarrassment or social rejection because you didn't show up to the thing you were supposed to show up to or because you embarrassed yourself by not being fun like you can't just be scared and collapse into a pile like you have to like go to the party and stuff because otherwise people think you're a weird kid
2: yeah and this sort of turns that on its head because usually kids have very relatable fears that are woven into a movie that then exaggerates them with some monster element. In this movie, the kids' like real life fears are way scarier than a man.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Because if if, if atomic energy just created a mutant ant, that feels more um more manageable than like uh, watching everyone get incinerated or die of uh, radiation poisoning, which is also discussed at length.
2: Right. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, wrapping your head around the concept of like I'd rather die quickly than like see everyone suffer and suffer myself is like a pretty heavy concept for anyone, much less a kid. And also, but when she's but also having they,
0: those conversations they don't their parents, and she's the adult in the room. She's actually like embracing what nuclear war actually means, as opposed to like, well, I don't know, really, maybe we should just keep
1: living this lie. Well, exactly. The movie doesn't spend a lot of time. Uh, really like letting everything that they're talking about in relation to the threat of like nuclear war sink in which is actually perfect because to everyone in this movie that's just like a constant omnipresent threat that they're dealing with so of course they're not going to sit and like dwell on it if anything they're trying the whole movie is about trying to ignore that so the fact that like it gets acknowledged but then not delved into is like Super appropriate for what everyone in this time is living through.
2: Yeah, they only think about it during, you know, the drills where they have to put their, you know, be under their desks and have a couple minutes to think about the, their mortality. Uh, exactly. But um, I might disagree with you guys in constantly framing it as like a distraction and like a way to escape your normal life. Because maybe it, maybe in this situation, because it's like a weird reversal where their problems are worse than the actual mant problem would be. But I think that a lot of what this movie is about and something that I that I think about a lot is how people either use movies allopathically or homeopathically. Um, and by that I mean you're either like me and you like to watch dark things and cry and feel sad and then it makes you feel better because you were sad and you just felt your feelings yeah. real hard. <laughs> um, or you're into them because they distract you and you totally take you out of your life and you're in this other world. I can't do that at all. I envy people who can. I use movies to relate to my real problems and feel them very deeply. So I can sort of move forward with it.
1: I think I, it just, I, so for me personally, that's a great um, observation. Of the two, because you're 100% right. I, I think for myself, it just kind of depends on what mood I'm in. Like, there's definitely times where I do the former, where I'm like, I'm going to have a good cry and I'm going to feel a lot of feelings and then it's going to be over. And I can, you know, go about like feeling like I had some sort of emotional release or catharsis or anything, which I guess is what like fiction was designed around in a lot of ways. But that's a whole different conversation. Um, Or just like, you know what? I've had a bad day. I'm going to put on something that's comforting for me and like forget about everything that's going on. Like I I feel like it can be a little bit situational where I'm not necessarily consistent. It probably just means you're balanced. uh, Maybe. Um, I definitely, I understand what, depending on where I'm at, like when I've been through like, you know, specifically like bad breakups or something, like you do end up like, I'm going to watch Say Anything 50 times and I'm going to cry a lot. And that's just going to be my week this week.
0: So, I will I will say one thing about that. Um, I think that whenever I've tried to use movies as a salve to, like, fix something directly, it's sort of like trying to will yourself to be happy. Mm-hmm. Like, it just doesn't come. <laughs> um, so, like, when I'm sad and I put on, like, Arrest Development, it just doesn't come. When I'm sad and I put on literally, like, any movie that has a sense of drama in it, I can get very empathetic for characters even either poorly written characters or evil characters like i can i can really feel what people are feeling and then i can work through those feelings a little bit more indirectly or i let my subconscious kind of do the work and then i come out of it and 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 that's how i kind of get through it i can almost never use movies as like a direct salve for for a particular emotional ailment like i feel like it doesn't work for me which hmm I'm sure lots of people it does. Like, I can't just put on a comedy when I'm sad and have it fix it all. Yeah. So I
2: lost my job a couple years ago. And now I'm, you know, I'm in a new position and it's wonderful. But when I, the day I found out that I lost my job, I was like, I usually don't rewatch movies very much. Um, I, you know, there's so many movies out there. um, So I'm trying to, you know, watch as many as I can. Um, But... The day that I lost my job, I was like, you know, you just go with your gut, what you want to watch. And I watched V for Vendetta, and then I watched (laughs) Into the Wild. And, like, I can't – so I always, like, go back there. Like, I must feel – these movies must do a lot for me because that's where I went. And, yeah, they were also both streaming, so, like – that's convenient, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't like scroll through, you know, the algorithm forever. Um, I knew I wanted to watch them. So that's, I always think that that's meaningful, like whatever you're, you're drawn to in when you're down, you know, and not necessarily like have a plan, like, oh, this is going to cheer me up and whatnot.
1: Um, well, and on on their very broadest strokes, uh, those those movies are somewhat related in that you could label them as uh, jobs are dumb.
0: <laughs> you're There's right. You're right. On the material. You're right. I but, didn't even
1: realize but that. But they, they are both kind of about how jobs are really stupid.
2: <laughs> yeah. No,
1: you're <laughs> right. How they actually might be soul crushing and awful. Yeah. Yeah. So any quick scenes and final thoughts that we should get to, uh, we could talk about this movie all night. I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I could talk about John fucking Goodman.
0: I could talk about fucking John Goodman all all night, but yeah. like the the scene where the scene where he's being introduced is such an amazing way to start the movie because it lets you know what mant is. It lets you know what the movie is gonna be playing off of in terms of themes and it introduces you to John Goodman. And without John Goodman in this movie, I might not have liked it because it would just be about the boring blonde kid. Um, and he does this amazing thing when he's talking when he goes, You've heard about it in national magazines, and he just quickly waves over a stack of newspapers.
1: And just stack. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: great. It's it's such a small joke, but it totally introduces you to the sort of humor that's going to be in the movie. Like it's about hucksterism, and it's about it's about love of movies, but it's also about like how those two intersect. Um, and J- John, yeah, that, I love that.
2: I found myself noticing that he kept referring to other medium or to other media. Like he would talk about TV a lot. Like he would be like, Oh, did you see that on TV? Like when people would find out things about the war, like when someone thought that they were under nuclear attack and then he had like another line about, or no, there's a sign up that said, this was actually a note I took. There's a sign up that says fight pay TV. um, Yeah. end that's in the movie theater, I think. So I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And when I first, I've always had the suspicion since I first used to watch the movie as a kid that like, it's, it was sort of fictional to think that a movie producer would have that much hands-on involvement with the local town. <laughs> but it sounds like this was really a way that these movies, like it, it doesn't seem like that unrealistic. Like maybe, is it, is it at least unrealistic that the lead actress in the movie would be in a nurse's uniform, you know, making people sign waivers?
0: <laughs> I, I, he would normally hire. So he also did that thing. William Castle did that thing where he would have um, a person pretend to be a nurse and sign across like you'd have to sign a health waiver to see the movie because it's so scary. It might, you know, scare you to death. But I don't think it was usually the lead actress in the movie because people would recognize her.
2: Right. And also, like, Call you. isn't it... I mean, isn't her... Even if it's a B-movie actress, like, come on. Like, how expensive would that be? That would be ridiculous, right? Like, she's
0: probably off... Yeah, she's she's off shooting a movie for some... Like, another piece yeah. of shit for somebody right. else.
1: Right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, so I guess we can assume that, like, her relationship to John Goodman's character um, got him the extra leverage, and it's also doing the movie thing where everyone has to be in the same place at the same time. But I always sort of considered his presence there to be like a fictional movie thing they were doing. So it's interesting to hear that like it is based in some sort of reality. Because I would always think, even as a kid, I'd be like, well, how would this scale? Like he can't go to every movie theater and like redo all the seats. Um, like, why is it? Why did he choose? It's because the,
1: the, yeah, the scale was so small. Right. Like,
2: I can't even like imagine big thing this thing is world. getting in
1: 50 theaters. Right. But it and it usually wasn't like in fifty theaters at once. It was like you they would tour the country with their role to get into fifty theaters, and they make a ton of money that way. But like it was very normal to have like a print or two of the movie, and then just tour the country. So you know, right. East Coast would get it first, and then four months later, someone on the West Coast would see the movie.
2: Yeah, like a trap, like because you know they movies are sort of based on theater, so it was sort of more yeah. similar to
0: theater. And if you don't see it on the – if you don't see it when it's touring around, you may never see it, right? Like, if yeah. it doesn't get into it, – if it doesn't get uh, onto TV and get regular sort of cycling, like, that might be it. That might be the last time you ever see a mant. Right. And what a shame. What a shame. Definitely that
2: specific production of Mant where the balcony <laughs> almost fell off. And there's – was there a, was there a video of a fire happening behind the – the screen, or was that just all the machinery catching on fire? I
1: I think, well, the those things that they're like, help me with number two, Jimmy. Like, those shoot fire. So I'm not sure what their contingency plan was. Uh, but it yeah. seemed like there was real flames. And then I'm not sure what the rest of the plan was, except hope the movie theater collapses through unrelated reasons. <laughs> so John
0: Goodman says, he says, uh, some a firefighter says, like... Um, is there a fire in there? And then John Goodman so, says, no, I turned it off. So I think John Goodman was in <laughs> yeah. control the whole time of the fire.
2: Yeah. And it looks a lot like an atomic bomb going off at one point.
0: Yes. And let's note that uh, Richard Picardo, uh, the theater owner, he also- Robert gonna, Robert P- Picardo. Okay. He is going to be in- He's every Dante movie. He's going to be in every Dante movie. Um, And Dick Miller and Dick Miller the the awesome Dick Miller um and he's uh he's one of the dudes in the, the from the um the the, the parents rights groups mm, yeah he's he's in tons of stuff like once you see he's him in you tons him of movies to yeah. yeah um the original that yes. guy yeah He's he's so he is the original bad guy, bad, bad, the original that guy. Sorry, it's late for it. But uh, yeah. So, yeah, even uh, Robert Picardo, he like tries to stop the too many kids going up on the balcony, but he's too busy worrying about his own bullshit to be able to stop enough kids going up there. So, like, I think apart from the balcony, I think everything apart from the balcony and apart from Harvey overdoing it, I think everything was pretty much in his control.
2: Right, well, Harvey overdid it in, like, a couple different ways, too. So, you know, because he overdid the shocks, and then he also got in the physical brawl in the end. Yes.
1: Uh, But, yeah, I guess my final thoughts are this movie's amazing. It is definitely one of my top five favorite Joe Dante movies. Normally, I would be kind of bummed that we're done talking about this because it'd be like, well, that's it for the Joe Dante. So I loved this discussion. I'm glad I get to have three more of them uh, about this director because, yeah, this – it, we could have we could have focused on so many different uh, parts of this movie because it just has so many things going uh, for it and so many different like plot threads and jokes and serious commentary and satire and it just really runs the the gauntlet of trying to throw in as much as possible while still having a very clear uh, story and through line. And um, I think uh, that's going to continue for the next couple movies and then kind of it blows up with him getting his chance to do uh, his craziest movie with uh, the last one we're covering this month.
0: Yeah, I think what Aaron said (laughs) for for brevity. I think what Aaron said, I think I think we're all kind of on the same page that this is a very remarkable film.
1: Well, Joey, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast, obviously, (laughs) because we we could probably keep talking for a couple hours. Uh, We can't wait to have you on again. But first, before we go, you were supposed to originally join us for the lure. That didn't end up happening to scheduling. What is your quick take on the lure? I
2: didn't like it very much. <laughs> of um I'm doing the, you know, the 52 Films by Women Challenge, as I try yeah. to do every year, and of all the women-directed films I saw this year, it was probably my least favorite. Um, which, you know, I'm pretty generous, so that's still like a three out of five star. review for me because i you know i have to really hate a movie to go below that but um i didn't like that the what bothered me most was that i felt like we're learning about these mermaids and these creatures but then the two mermaids are so different from each other that it's hard to learn about like i get the notion that um, you know, they're dangerous and these men just think that they're beautiful, but they're really vicious creatures and what, and like hat part animal. But then one is totally motivated by romance and the other seems to be like pretty goddamn vicious. So I thought that was sort of like confusingly drawn. Um, and then I also just didn't really care for the songs. Um, but when I learned more about the director afterwards, about how she grew up in like a weird disco sex club, Um, Yeah, it makes more sense from like a personal experience um, (laughs) perspective. Um, And then there's also just something I need to bring to everyone's attention, which is that the older woman in that movie looks exactly like Real Housewife of New York City, Sonia Morgan. And I have a tweet about that shameless plug for my Twitter handle movie equations in which I add movies together to make other movies. I have uh, a picture of both of them, to because the the I could not stop thinking like, hey, it's <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm really glad you did your <clears throat> I'm really glad you did your work on this one because I I need to see them side by side.
1: I'm actually I'll I'll say this I'm a little disappointed to find out that you are a mermaid bigot. Do you think that just because someone's a, a mermaid that they're all the same? <laughs> uh, but you know they're individual fish people. And they can have individual personalities, but, you know, um, I appreciate the plug. I, I follow you on Twitter and there's some really great stuff on, oh, on that. So Oh, nice. So, we we can put a link to it in the show notes. Yes. Uh, do you have anything else you want to plug? Oh, uh, you know, no, not
2: really. Unless you're, you know, if you're into, um, uh, you know, being part of the food movement and getting action alerts I write for my organization, yeah. you can go – um, check out uh, Center for Food Safety um, is the very good org I work for fighting for, you know, green, safe and healthy food policy. Um, uh, the Twitter handle for that is CFS True Food, um, or it's just Center for Food Safety on Facebook. Um, so that's a that's a good thing as well. That was very distracting. Did you guys like it or should I just go listen to the the episode?
1: Uh, we, we loved it. Yeah, we were pretty positive about it. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> But we really love the music, uh, which was a big part of our praise. So like if you're like, oh, I don't care for this, I can like uh our whole first like, I don't know, season about musicals were about how much Peter hates music no. So it's if you if you don't hate now he doesn't hated musicals. But I get that like if you're not into like the aesthetic and the music, especially of a musical, that can make it um difficult. And as we discussed, if you're a mermaid bigot. Yes, of course. Um <laughs> Uh, so yeah no this was amazing and Joey yeah. we're definitely going to have you back yes. uh, this has been a great next time uh, we'll book four hours. <laughs> yeah
2: right next yeah. time we'll be like okay we're all taking half a day off <laughs> and um,
1: yeah. we're, we're going to talk about the following <laughs> topics uh, <Right. laughs> I, uh, but no this was amazing and we can't wait to have you back uh, Peter we still have three more Joe Dante movies uh, next week we are doing The Burbs with the Koski brothers, uh, Dustin and Adam more specifically, uh, if you want to if you wanna give them names. Uh, <laughs> if you want to give them names. Well, someone did want to give them names. Peter is their parents and that's how they got the names. So <laughs> we're just, <laughs> if they didn't want to, they didn't want to, but they did. Uh, and so we will respect their wants and desires and also give them the same names. Uh and then we're doing Rock and Roll High School, which uh, is just a Peter and Aaron joint, and then we're wrapping it up with um, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and Hayden uh, and Hayden Bythway. So, uh, yeah, that's all we have. Uh, we will we'll see you out there at the movies while someone is uh, electrocuting your butt and throwing shit in your face. Good night! Good night! Bye. Nice.
0: Listening to we love to watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com/slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys.
1: We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost – We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And
0: we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music,
1: Stitcher, tune in we're currently on soundcloud we'll take that out if soundcloud goes away <laughs> that's it thanks for listening stay tuned guys on our facebook page especially we're gonna have a lot more polls a lot more prizes and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys so keep it tuned in uh let us know what you guys are thinking and again above all else thanks for listening to we love to Watch.